This morning, we are actually starting, uh, it's a new year, so we're going to start a new series. We um, made it through Mark last year, um, and this year we're going to do a number of series throughout the year. And this first one is going to last maybe, it's going to last about seven weeks. Um, and we're calling it Grace DNA, okay? And the idea is, I want this series to be about who we are as a church. The fabric that Grace Church is made of. Oh, background music. Um, what our culture is, what our heartbeat is, what our DNA is as a church. Um, so what are we here for? What's this church all about? And maybe a little more personally for you, like, why are you here? Right? I mean, it's a beautiful, it's a beautiful morning in the mountains. Why do you show up week after week at this place um, to do this with these people? Like, what's the point? What's what's our DNA, what's this all about? I want this series to start to answer these questions for us as a church. Now, the first time I ever met any of you was my candidating weekend a year ago, September. And um, that weekend, I heard some of you talk about this church in a way that resonated very deeply with me. Um, at one point in the interviews, uh, we had like hours of interviews uh, sitting around a table. Um, yeah, and it was, it was good. But at one point, um, I was describing what I think church should be. And everyone, looked at, look, everyone at the table looked at me and said, where did you get that? Because that's exactly the way we've been talking about the mission of this church before you even got here. Almost word for word. And the word at the center of the description of our mission that we both shared before we'd even met each other was love, okay? The Bible says God is love. And, and, Jesus, um, <clears throat> and Jesus says love is at the center of the Christian life. The great commandment tells us to love God and love our neighbor. And then that leads into the great commission, which calls us to go and make disciples of all nations. Because honestly, if we're just worried about loving those who show up inside the doors of this church, that mission's too small, isn't it? We need a mission that's bigger than just us. So it's these three great branches of love, to love God, to love one another, and then to love our valley, that I think really describe the heart and the mission of everything a church should do. And that's how I want to spend the next few weeks. I want to unpack what those branches mean, what that fruit looks like for our church. And really, I want to ask you then, is that something that you want to join in on? Like, are you with us in that mission that we're all about? But before we get into all of that, we need to back up one step because um, that's a whole lot of love, all right? So if, if we're called to love God by serving him, worshiping him, and devoting our whole lives to him, if we're called to love one another by encouraging and equipping each other, by um, forgiving and bearing one another's burdens, by um, showing hospitality and extending ourselves for one another's good, and if we're called to love this valley by being a gift and a blessing to people, whether or not they ever show up in the doors of our church. Um, I mean, to, to the point where we want people to say, yeah, um, they believe some crazy stuff over there at Grace Church, right? I mean, they believe Jesus is God. They believe people will rise from the dead, that someone actually already has, like, wacko stuff, okay? They're out there, but I'm glad they're here. I disagree with them, maybe, but I'm glad they're here because they're good for our valley. They're good for this place, right? They love the kids in this valley, whether they're their kids or not. 
They have an eye for the marginalized and the hurting, whether they're ever going to receive anything back from them or not. Um, They want to partner with um, and support organizations that make this valley a better place for everybody. You see, the calling to love is far-reaching, expansive, sort of never-ending. And the question is, where in the world do the resources for all of that come from? Like, how are we ever going to live up to that mission if that is our DNA? Because if you're anything like me, your love tank, also known as your heart, uh, does not naturally incline itself to those kinds of things, right? I mean, I find myself much more naturally inclined to be selfish rather than giving, I find myself much more naturally inclined to think of me first and my comfort first rather than the good of others first. More ready to follow my own intuition about what's going to make me happy than listen to God's command about what the good life really is. In other words, I'm not a very good Christian, right? Like I'm not, a very, I'm not very good at loving the way Christ calls us to love. And if this is what God really wants from us and from our church, where are we going to find the resources for that? That's got to be the first question before we even start talking about the mission of this church. So the question is, where does it come from? And the beautifully simple message of the gospel of Christianity is this. 1 John 4.19, we love because God first loved us, right? The only way we are ever going to have resources to love God, love one another, love the valley, is if we are tapped into and receiving the infinite love of God. If Grace Church is a giant tree and the tree and the three great branches that support and drive everything we do are those three loves, the only way there's going to be any lasting fruit in anyone's life, including our own, is if we're drawing from a much deeper, much richer, much more expansive reservoir of love than our own cramped hearts. The only way we're going to see any lasting transformation any growth in grace, any kingdom impact in this valley is if our roots dive down into a cistern that is much richer than our own. So um, the question behind the question, the question for our time together this morning is, um, what would it take for you to know that God loves you? Okay, What would it take for you to know, know, like deep in your bones, be convinced and sure that God exists, and that he loves you? Because until we answer that question, there's no point even talking about how we're going to go out and be the church for this community. All right? So we love because he first loved us. What would it take for those of you who are investigating Christianity, who might not be fully convinced of it yet, who are interested in Jesus but not really sure, you're full of doubts, what sort of evidence would you need to be convinced that this whole thing's real And that God loves you. What would it take? What experience would it take? For those of you who are Christians, who already believe God exists, what would it take for you to believe God loves you? And that no matter where he calls you, it's for your good. Like no matter what he asks you to endure or where he asks you to go, it's because he loves you. A famous atheist in the last century, a guy named Bertrand Russell, was a philosophy professor at Oxford And he was asked a question very similar to this. Someone asked him, um, Bertrand, great name, Bertrand, when you die and you uh, maybe you find yourself before God um, and God asks you, why didn't you believe in me? What are you going to say to him? 
And Bertrand's Russell response without a blink was, not enough evidence, God. Not enough evidence. We feel this way, don't we? Jesus is sort of, he's hidden in our world. Why does God insist on being so hidden? Why not more evidence? What would, really, what would really help you believe God exists and that he loves you? I mean, get creative. Like, name anything. Okay, think of it right now. Would it be like the classic words across the sky written in clouds directly to you? Maybe it would be an audible voice or some experience, probably that sounds something like Morgan Freeman, right? Speaking to you, telling you that you're real. Would it be something tangible, some experience, some miracle? What evidence would it take for you to know God loves you? Well, I think along with Bertrand Russell, those are the sorts of things we're looking for to be conclusive evidence that would change our lives. But our passage this morning actually points to something pretty surprising and something even more compelling and transformative than any external evidence or experience that we could have. Jesus says, is that all you ask for? Like a a little more evidence, a little more experience? He says, I've given you something far more certain, far more life-changing, far more lasting than all of that. Here is the reservoir of God's love you can draw from, not just once, but every day for the rest of your life. We're going to jump into our passage. It's from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 24. It's on the morning that Jesus was raised from the dead. And we're going to join two disciples who are walking down a road outside of Jerusalem. All right, we're picking up in verse 13. I'll read the first half of the passage. That very day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking, to, uh, talking with each other about all these things that had happened. And while they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. He was hidden to them. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty indeed, and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and the rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it's now the third day since these things have happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see him. But him they did not see. Um, Okay, so... Uh, we have two disciples walking down a road. Okay, one is named Cleopas. Now, some scholars think that the, this, uh, this pair of disciples may actually have been a married couple, um, a husband and a wife. And they would have been followers of Jesus, but not among the inner ring of Jesus' 12 disciples. They would have been in Jerusalem for Passover week. They would have been in town when all of this stuff happened. And now they were going home, and they were on the road, okay? And the road, as we know, in literature and everything, it's this, like, image for the journey of life, right? And they find themselves in between. They find themselves leaving a place of hope, not quite knowing where they're going to go. They, they, they 
they had this vision of the good life. They thought they had it figured out. It turns out their story didn't happen like they thought it would. But now there's this new news that, gosh, he rose again. So they're in this place of hope, doubt, confusion. And look at verse 17. I love this verse. When they met Jesus, it said they stood still looking sad. I mean, of course they're sad. On that day, in that place, on that road, they were confused, they were battered, they'd been through a roller coaster of emotional events. They're wrung out, unsure. Their worldview sort of has been flipped on its head, but then there's this glimmer of hope, too. They're in between, right? They are us. Luke is asking us to join these two disciples on this road, because this is us, isn't it? Like, we, we have a vision of the good life. We're hopeful, but we're doubtful. We, we, the story's not quite turning out like we thought it would. Um, and spiritually, we can relate to them too. I think this is fascinating. Our theology might be spot on, just like Cleopas's is, but the power of the presence of the resurrected Jesus might not be in our lives, might not be transforming us. It's likely that many of us are believing what one author I read called the, the gospel according to Cleopas. Look at this. He gets a lot of things right. He named Jesus as a prophet, mighty in deed and word. He gets the history right. The chief priests and the rulers crucified him. He put his hope for the world in Jesus. He hoped he would redeem Israel. And he can even re- recount the central claims of the resurrection, the eyewitness accounts, the women at the tomb, the empty tomb. He had so many of the facts right. He had so much good theology, but it lacked life, didn't it? It lacked vibrancy. The facts of salvation were right, but the power of salvation of a totally transformed life was missing. So their question and our question is this. In a world where Jesus is hidden to us, what, how is he known? What, what would it take for us to to move from just knowing things about him, good theology, to experiencing the power and the presence of his love, his reality in our life. You guys see the difference, right? Just knowing things about him to him being with us, present, actively changing us. We're here. How do we get to here? And I think what we tend to answer is the, the big experience, right? The, the emotionally moving, the voice from heaven. I need something to convince me he's real and present in my life. Look at what Jesus does next to meet these disciples where they're at. I find it so surprising and so lovely that, um, I mean, it's, it's changed my life in a lot of ways, and I hope it does yours too. Picking up in verse 25, he said to them, "'O foolish ones,' How slow of heart to believe all that the people have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village where they were going. He acted as if he were going farther, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it's towards evening and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. And when he was at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, they recognized him, and then he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, the Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. 
Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. Okay, so the situation is two sad people trying to make their way through this world. They believe a whole lot of truth, but it lacks that life-changing, transforming vibrancy that they're hoping for. They need to believe in Jesus more. They need to know that he loves them and he's with them in all things, that he died for them and rose again and he's present with them and they are us. And the resurrected Jesus himself shows up with them and his plan is to do that for them, to reveal to them the, the ways that he will be with them all the time, to, to give them the certain truth that changes their lives forever, a deep assurance of his love. And what does Jesus do? Does he uh, do the thing that Bertrand Russell and the rest of us probably want him to do? Does he, like, trans-teleport and do, like, miracles and glow and, like, speak with a booming voice from the clouds? No. He could have done any of those things. Like, the resurrected Jesus was walking alongside these two. And what does he choose to do to give them a reservoir of love that they can draw on knowing that he's with them forever? He does a Bible study. Right? I mean, um, he, he does a mundane, boring, everyday, like he opened this book and he showed it to them and their lives were changed. You can't make this stuff up. Um, to convince people that, he, to convince his people that he loved them more deeply than they will ever know, that he is their resurrected king, he opens the same old book that is sitting on all of our bookshelves at home. Luke 24, 27 is probably one of the most important verses in your Bible because it's Jesus telling you how to read your Bible. He says, In the beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. This is the word teaching us how to read the word. Okay, And until you see that the whole book is about Jesus, from Jesus, about Jesus, for Jesus. It's like, until you see that fact, it's like you're looking through the opposite end of a telescope. It's, it's all just like, it's hard to make sense of. It's inaccessible. It's frustrating. Is it a book of rules to follow? Well, that order stacks up way too tall really, really fast. Is it a book of virtue where we are to emulate the characters in it? Well, if you've read anything in the Bible, don't start emulating the people in the Bible, okay? They're a mess. I mean, it's a train wreck of sinners, so don't do that. What is this thing? When we see what Jesus shows us here, shows the disciples that it is a story that tells of his creation and his grace entering your life from the first page to the last, that telescope turns around and the whole thing pops in a way that it never has before. We see one vast sweeping story of God's love for his people. We see that it's a book that's trustworthy and true and authoritative for us because its author is also our author. Psalms 119.73 says, Your hands have made and fashioned me, Give me understanding that I may learn your commandments. You see what David's doing there? He's saying, Jesus made you with great value and dignity and love like an artist fashioned you and gave you life. And now your creator, Jesus, gives you this word that explains to you how to flourish and thrive as he designed you. The book, this book, is authoritative for you because the same author who wrote it wrote you. 
We see elsewhere God's word is clear. We can understand it. We can know him truly, even though we can't know him fully. It's necessary. We can't know God without it. It's sufficient. We don't need extra revelation on top of it. We don't need a, a whisper from, or an intuition. We, God's word is enough to, to lead us in a life of trust following him. But maybe most of all in this story, we see God's word is life-changing. Because here's what's so interesting. After the Bible study, Jesus does go on to do the big show, bang, revelation thing for these disciples, doesn't he? He goes to their house, and he shows his resurrected bodily glory to these two disciples when they sit down for a meal. They have that experience, that evidence that all of us are hoping for, okay? So they've had both experiences now. They've had the normal old Bible study that all of us have access to, and they've had the thing, the experience that should define their um, faith forever. And when they go back to review the day, what do they point to as the thing that was transformative for their life? Look at verse 32. They said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? Right? This is the reservoir of love that Jesus has given us to sustain our faith forever. In Isaiah 55, he says, My word will not return to me empty. It will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. The word of God does the work of God in this world. If you're on the road, like all of us, hopeful but doubtful, maybe sad, maybe confused, if you want to meet God, know that he's real, know that he loves you, If you're looking for assurance and hope and joy and life, God promises you he will meet you through his Holy Spirit in an old book that all of us have sitting on our shelves at home. It is amazing. It's amazing. He says this is better than any wild experiential thing you can ever have. So to wrap up here, um, what do we do about this? Um, this is the conviction and the DNA of this church. We believe that God is at work through his word in this world, that it's trustworthy, that his Holy Spirit is changing people as we open it. And so we're going to open it almost every chance we get, okay? So Sunday morning, when we're preaching, it's always going to be from the word. This is not Luke's wisdom hour or some visiting pastor's like, you know, insight, Dr. Phil kind of thing. Like this is God has spoken and it's my job. It's the preacher's job to hear those words and tell you the same words. Okay. Jeremiah puts it like this. Let him who has my word speak my word faithfully. My main goal each week is just to give you a gift that God has already given you. He has done so many good things. We can do this for a long, long, long time and never exhaust the riches of the gifts of the gospel in his word. So we're going to do it here. And then we're going to do it in small group Bible studies. I think one of where, where there's not a preacher who's telling you what it says, right? And you actually open it up, read it yourself, and you got to like ring out the meaning of it from like, like it's a big old orange. Like squeeze it until like you get the juice and the meaning from it. I think studying the Bible with a few other people and having an honest conversation about it is one of the most formative ways the Holy Spirit works in our life. So we're going to do that. 
If you want to be in on something like that, we're going to start a couple of small group Bible studies in the coming months. There's a sign-up sheet in the back, dates TBD, but I'd love to have you join in on that. I think it'd be highly formative for us as a church. And then we're going to encourage one another to spend our time with God individually in his word too. Chewing on his promises, being convicted by his calling, resting in his grace. It's the start of a new year, so maybe this is something you've been thinking about for a while, but setting a goal for reading the Bible this year, parts of it maybe. The New Testament and the Psalms would be a great place to start. Or, you know, if you want to jump in the deep end, just read the whole thing in 2019. And then find a friend and do it with them and encourage one another and stick with it. Because God is at work in the world through his word, through the Holy Spirit. And the more we're in it, the more he will be transforming our hearts. All right, I'm going to close with a story that's kind of too good to pass up. I have a friend, he's a pastor, and a few years back he had this illness. He wasn't feeling well, so he went into the doctor, and uh, <laughs> the doctor prescribed him some medicine and said, this should help. The only, the only thing is one of the possible side effects is hallucinations. Okay, So if you have any of those, let me know. We'll find you some new medicine. So my buddy goes home. He pops the pills. That night, he wakes up at 2 in the morning, and his whole body is covered in fur, okay? And he gets into the shower at 2 in the morning with a razor to shave his entire body. He's like, well, it looks like I'm covered in fur again. I better shave. So he's in the shower about ready to shave his entire body, and his wife, his wife comes in and says, honey, what are you doing? He says, well... I mean, I got to shave. Look at me. I'm cover- I look like a bear. I'm covered in fur. And she says, you're not covered in fur, okay? You look the same as you did yesterday. And he, so at this moment in his life, he has a crisis of authority, doesn't he? He has two voices in his mind. He has two possible options to listen to. He can listen to his own voice, the, his own intuition about what the world is really like, And all the facts, all the evidence, sight, sound, touch, all of it tells him his body is covered in fur, okay? Or he has another voice, Um, the voice of his wife, who he's been married to for decades, who he knows loves him, and he knows has his best interest in mind, and he knows is not going to lie to him, and he knows wants the best for him, okay? So two voices, which one's he going to listen to? He has a crisis of authority, doesn't he? Luckily... He opted to listen to his wife. (laughs) She tucked him back into bed. The next day, he went to the doctor, got some new medicine. No more fur. Look at that. All fixed up. But here's the point. We have a crisis of authority in our own lives, too, don't we? There are so many voices vying for our attention. So many voices telling us what the good life really is. And our own intuition and our own expectations um, is probably one of the loudest. But into that that into our minds, into, into our lives, is another voice, a voice from someone outside of us who loves us, who has our best interests in mind, who is always looking out for our good, who promises to be with us at all times. It's the loving voice of a friend, the saving voice of Jesus, the intimate voice of someone who not only knows you, but created you, designed you knows how you were meant to live in this world. It's the voice of someone who died for you so that you could be with him forever. And we have a choice. Which voice are we going to follow? Which voice are we going to listen to? Which voice are we going to let shape our lives? This is a reservoir of love. 
that is designed to sustain you in a life of faith over your whole life. And it's a reservoir of love that can shape the very mission of this church. This is God's word, and it is a gift to us. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you um, for your revelation to us in your word. Thank you for telling us the story of you and the story of ourselves and the story of your church in a way that nourishes us and feeds us. I pray that this church, Grace Church, becomes, um, is, continues to be a place that's devoted to drawing from the riches of the reservoir of love you have given us in this book. I pray that we eat it up all the time, that we're always talking about it, reading it, considering it, meditating on it, and that as we do, your Holy Spirit miraculously works in our lives to bring us life and to bring life and love to those around us. We ask you these things in your name. Amen.